From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Monzo have their say following the watchdog expose, New York says no to the OCC's fintech charters, and McKinsey, yes, McKinsey, reckons banks need to shape up or risk getting left behind. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we get into that, you may have heard by now we made a bit of a documentary. Uh, it's called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, and it's now available to watch for free over on 11years.film. Check it out now, again, 11years.film, and share it with all of your friends using the hashtag 11years. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 371 of Fintech Insider News, and happy, happy, happy Halloween. Today, I am joined by my colleague and first-time co-host, Kate Ooh. Moody. How's it going, Kate? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm uh, very excited to find out if I hate my voice just as much when I hear it professionally recorded <laughs> as I do just day-to-day, so yeah. Well, I, I like it around the office. Like, I'm liking it so far. Like, um, you had a busy week? Yeah, no, very busy. Uh, I'm in that kind of half-excited, half-mad-stressed pre-holiday week. Um, so yeah, just light at the end of the tunnel, but plowing on through. Um, I've managed to make the slightly catastrophic mistake, though I don't know if any other rugby fans in the room, but I've managed to book a flight that overlaps with the Rugby World Cup final. Oh dear. <sighs> so that's, yeah, been a bit of an emotional blow. Oh, I mean, you'll, you'll find out if it's good news or bad news at the end, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. And as always, we're not alone. We're joined by some pretty damn awesome guests, as always, uh, and making their new show debuts. We have Eduardo Volta, who is the VP Head of Fintechs at MasterCard. How's it going? Very well. Thanks, David. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Uh, and we also have James Butland, who is the VP of Global Banking at L Wallachs. How's it going? Very good. Thank you. And uh, how are you? both of your weeks been like it seems like uh, all round I think uh, Q4 is just like rapidly um, disappearing in front of my eyes but yeah. uh, similar thing in your this is uh, November tomorrow so uh, yeah it's getting close to the end of the year all those things you haven't done I think uh Starting to stack up rapidly approaching you exactly. I know all the things we meant to do um all right let's get on with the news so first up, we have a story that was uh, reading from The Telegraph, but um, I mean, I was on holiday. This was the thing that I, uh, when I took a sneak peek of what was going on on, uh, on Twitter, uh, first on Watchdog. It was Monzo now have their say following the BBC's highlights of a pretty critical Watchdog attack. Um, so for listeners abroad or who just didn't pick that up, uh, Watchdog is a BBC program which seeks to expose what it sees as malpractice in companies across the UK. Uh, last week, it highlighted Monzo in particular to dig into how they do AML. Uh, no Monzo spokesperson was directly quoted in the film itself, or there was some rather snazzy ice work on show at one point. Uh, Monzo say they ha- are in line with uh, AML practices at work in UK banks, and nothing that was highlighted in the program is unusual, uh, even if it was portrayed in not such good lights in the program. So, I mean, we could probably have a good stab at talking about this one, but we thought we'd probably bring somebody in who knows a lot more about it than us. So introducing Tom Blumfield, who is the Monzo CEO. How's it going, Tom? It's going very well, thank you. Glad to be here. I mean, I mean, I was on a sun lounger when all this kind of happened last week, but um, I guess, uh, unfortunately, you weren't available to talk to them, right? I um, had just been in hospital for some knee surgery, which is which went well. I'm uh, back off the crutches now. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, under the knife. Something serious, like a, a ACL or something? Or um, I tore my meniscus playing squash about three or four years ago. It's a, a horrible injury, so I'm just trying to get that repaired. Ouch. All right. Well, uh, I mean, it wasn't just the uh, running repairs on your knees that you sort of came in to have a chat about. But um, <laughs> I mean, this was a I mean a bit of a surprise, I have to say, definitely from from my perspective. But 
I mean, you guys clearly didn't get any warning that this was coming from from Watchdog's perspective. Uh, we did get warning, and we provided comment. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure if the whole of our comment was was reproduced, but we did provide comment. Okay, and I mean, do you feel there's been sort of a rise of more scrutiny around actually what's happened in this sense, or I mean, how do you think the portrayal was and you know, what's your sort of response, I guess, to in, in terms of the things that Watchdog highlighted? So I'd step back from that particular program and talk about the issue more, more broadly, which is there has been a big rise in bank fraud, um, in authorised push payment in particular. And there's been a lot of criticism that banks aren't doing enough to combat that, including the week before on that same show, saying banks aren't doing enough to fight this. And so we have a set of obligations to detect and prevent financial crime, money laundering and and fraud in particular. And I believe we have very, very robust technology that is is actually very good at spotting um, suspicious behavior. And then we have a set of obligations under the law to report those um, to the authorities and, and to exit those accounts. And so we have to balance that with also treating customers fairly, um, especially treating legitimate customers fairly and not inconveniencing people unnecessarily. And this is the whole thing is complicated even further by a prohibition on tipping off, which is basically if you suspect someone of money laundering, you cannot tell them um, you, in, in case you jeopardize a, a criminal investigation effectively. And so we're sort of... Um, we're trying to balance these two things, um, f- fighting financial crime with treating legitimate customers fairly and not inconveniencing them, whilst having almost our, 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 at least our, our voice gagged by this, this prohibition on tipping off. And it's very tricky um, because we see fraudsters, like any bank, who will use the accounts and they will commit, um, you know, they'll, they'll go and, and scam other people at other banks and sometimes use Monzo to move funds through. And we have very, very good ways of detecting that and we shut the accounts down. And then very often those people will go on social media and start screaming about it. They will contact me directly and, and in every case I look into it. And in honestly, in 95% of cases, it is an absolute slam dunk, this is a criminal. Mm. And they come up with with heartbreaking stories. Mm. I can't feed my children. I'm I'm going to be made homeless. You've done this to me, and I'm sitting there looking at the police report, say, explaining exactly where the money's come from. Mm. Going, this is this is totally incongruous. Mm. Um, the BBC came to us with a large number of cases, and we looked into all of them. And without crossing line over tipping off, I'm very confident in the decisions we're making here. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very, very tricky for us to go and, and justify it on a case-by-case basis. Mm. Am I saying that we have never got this wrong ever? Absolutely not. There will be cases where we inconvenience legitimate customers and we will get it wrong. Um, and that that's a risk of doing business. But overwhelmingly, I think we get this right. Mm. And it's, it's, um, so it is hard uh, to face that kind of those kind of stories in the press, it's, it's really, really hard for us to respond. I mean, we put a blog post out basically outlining this. Yeah. I mean, AML globally is a massive problem because to your point, this is not uh, this is not a small thing. The money that's actually being used in many of these instances is being used for reasonably horrific things in society. So actually taking a, you know, a, a more technologically advanced approach to dealing with this and dealing with it rather than actually not dealing with it and allowing actually the, the cost of that just to be swallowed up in society seems like a sensible thing to do but i mean you're you're in a bit of a rock and a hard place here is you can't necessarily talk about it in a specific sense but actually you're in a situation where you feel confident in the processes and the technology that you've got in place to 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 deal with it we do and that's 
I've reviewed it personally. We've had our internal risk and compliance teams review our decision-making process. A recent review saw that in 95% of cases, we were absolutely confident in our decision. And in 5% of cases, it's just a question mark. It's, there's a judgment call where there's a set of behaviors that could indicate money laundering and fraud um, or could not. But in 95% of cases, we were confident in our response. I think we do flag more accounts because the, the technology we're using is actually better at finding this stuff. Mm. Um, and so it's just it's incredibly frustrating because we don't we do a lot of really really good work to return millions of pounds to victims of fraud. We've been very heavily involved in in um, tracking down and then prosecuting human trafficking cases in cases of sexual slavery. Um, really really gruesome horrible stuff that I'm incredibly proud that we're working to prevent. And it's very frustrating when you get known criminals, known fraudsters taking to social media, um, slinging mud. Um, but I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, I, I think um, from a, a, you know, fraud or uh, money laundering perspective, you know, arguably are we at a stage now where, I mean, to a certain degree, this is a this is a sign of success to a certain degree because, I mean, HSBC has always been put up as the the biggest uh, opportunity to go after for any element of these things because of the sheer payoff for it. But now you're at a point where you've got how many customers? Three? Yeah, three, 3.2 million. Uh, then actually, is this part of sort of doing business that you're facing into here where, I mean, you, you've you been such a, I guess, from a, the way in which you talk to consumers, the way in which you communicate with the community, you know, the way in which you're, you're sort of setting yourself out. Is this now, a, I guess, a sign of the times to a certain degree where we're getting to a point where the things that would be thrown at uh, a HSBC or a Barclays, the media are seeing you in a similar light. Therefore, uh, you know, from Watchdog's perspective, Lloyd's Banking Group or you or whoever are, you're a bank. Yeah. And in, I mean, in a sense, it's sort of, it is a testament of, a testament to our success that we have grown to a point where we are, and we're, we're becoming a mainstream bank. And that is something we are proud of. I think, again, stepping back, I think there is this interesting trend in UK media and you see it with celebrities, you see it with sports people, musicians and, and startups where you spend a year or two um, really building, building this stuff, these people, these companies up. Really, and, I, and we, the first two or three years, we benefited from that. We mm. saw some amazingly positive, even euphoric coverage. We could do no wrong for a period of time. And then there's a tipping point when you're big enough to then tear down that everyone just flips and so... I actually don't think either are justified. Like, like anyone, like any company, any person, there are things we do really well and there are things we're not so good at and we make mistakes. And so probably the euphoric early press was overblown. But I, I really feel um, with some publications in the last six or nine months, you can go and read just a string of headlines that if they were true, Monzo would, be, would have failed by now. Mm. And that is not true. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be an interesting sort of bias there of like not just, I mean, not just, not just with you guys, but actually with a number of them where I think fintech has got to that scale where now it's not just the plucky underdog. It's it's actually a, uh, you know, a target for people. I mean, how much do you how much are you concerned about that? Because I guess we're in a sense where, you know, you know, you guys have now done TV adverts and, you know, you're you're becoming more mainstream, essentially. Um, the would you know, I would have a concern that um, you know, my mum might not have seen a TV ad, but but she might watch Watchdog. So, you know, is there a risk here that this could have a you know a detrimental in, uh, impact, not just for you guys, but actually for the industry as a whole? 
I think there is a risk, but I, on balance, I think most of the reporting is is balanced. Actually, I think it is really a great thing we have a free press that that scrutinises all industries, not just ours. And I think so. Overall, that is a very very positive thing. I think I I hope. Um, that this is a sort of a blip, an aberration, but yeah, there is a risk if it continues and if it um, amplifies that, yeah, yeah, it causes damage not just to us but the industry. Mm. What do you guys think? Sort of opening up to to the to the rest of you guys. It seems like uh, quite an interesting one, and uh, I mean, I was uh, definitely enthralled watching it from uh, the the Sunlander in Rhodes. But what about you guys? Yeah, I think um, I think you could write that story about any bank. You know, it wasn't unique to Monzo. Um, so I watched the program, and I think the subjects that they brought up or the topics apply to most financial institutions. So I agree with Tom. As a licensed um, regulated institution, you're in that difficult space where you can't tip off and you have to treat people fairly. I think the problem is uh, as a new company, whether you're a fintech company or payments company as, as we are, um, you are a target of fraudsters. They do want to move money around the world, so they will target new companies. We, as much as Monzo or you know um, Mastercard, have very strong uh, fraud controls in our business to stop these payments. So, yes, you can say, um, you know, my account was cancelled. There's probably a reason behind that. Mm. So, I didn't see it as an attack on Monzo. I mean, you can write that about any any bank, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a real point there about just because somebody complains doesn't necessarily mean it's it it is valid. No. Um, and actually, to your point, Tom, there's a lot of uh, you know, what seemingly sound like very good stories kind of put alongside, uh, you know, uh, criminals are probably one of the most entrepreneurial people that there are. So, you know, coming up with a decent backstory for these things are, are not necessarily uh, uh, unexpected to a certain degree. What do you think? Yeah, no, and it's, it's very interesting. What I picked up from what Tom was saying is, is very interesting, the, the different point of view of the media before and after. So when the company is growing, the, you can do no wrong versus when the company is bigger and established, it's all about negative aspect. And obviously for us, we have a very close relation with Monzo. So we work with Monzo a lot and I have to say, it is true that Monzo, with their own technology, they can actually find out things much faster than other issuers. And that puts them sometimes sp- on the spotlight for the right reason, for the wrong reason, just because they, they they are ahead of finding out issues that they report to us and to some of their partners. So I think it's because of that position, I think they should continue leveraging it. And, and it, it doesn't matter. The media will say what they say, but I think the, the, the fintech world and Monzo, they're doing an amazing service to, to actually the community. So mm-hmm. I'm sure, uh, like you say, there's, there's 5% of these things where essentially if you're in a situation where it is a, a real issue, it's a system being overzealous in some instance. But I guess these are fine-tuning points that you need to do continually. And I guess the more data you have in these instances, the, the better you're going to get at actually doing these things. But I mean, dealing with that when that happens, I guess, is the, the critical thing, because not everybody who has a, you know, a, a bad story is legitimate, but equally, some people are going to get caught up in the mix here, right? Yeah. And the, that is um, that is the issue. It's the gray area. And it's not even, I think there will always be some zone of uncertainty and honestly it is you're talking about five percent where the automated system has flagged it and said have a look at it and a human goes in and you just have to make a judgment call you've got someone saying you know this this person promised to sell me a car on ebay i sent them the money the car never you know there was no car it's a total scam and the other person is is saying the opposite but you know no, this was legitimate i did 
and you've you've got to make a call there. Mm. There is, I don't. Th- ultimately, you're making hard choices, hard sort of decisions in ambiguous situations. Um, but honestly, in ninety or ninety five percent of cases, it's so black and white from our perspective um, that that we we're confident in our decisions, and the the inventiveness, the stories that um, some criminals will come up with are heart wrenching. But you, you, you sort of, and I've done this repeatedly. You have the data, the evidence, and I, unfortunately, the rules we can't share, but because they make them less effective. But we have all of the rules that indicate why we so strongly believe this is a criminal versus their story, and it's like it's laughable because it's it's like night and day. Mm. Um, but there will always be the the kind of judgment area, and we will get it wrong. Yeah, and I think getting licensed as a as a bank or a payment company is so difficult and such a long process. You know, I don't think new fintechs have the same maybe luxury of a bank that's been around for 150 years. If you get it wrong, then you get, you're not going to get just a slap on the wrist, probably more severe consequences. So you also have to protect your business. And if it is a, a grey area or a case where you're not really sure on, sometimes it's better to err on the side of caution um, because you can't acquire customers at all costs or acquire customers which aren't appropriate for your business. Mm. Well, I mean, there's probably a lot of criminals who are not being picked up by other systems who are not having to complain on social media to a certain degree, right? So uh, it's an interesting an interesting thing, isn't it? So just because you're not hearing the noise about it doesn't mean it's not actually being, uh, or it probably means it's not being addressed rather than the fact that it is. You know? Absolutely. And, and I totally agree. I mean, if you think fighting fraud is one of the biggest challenges for the payment industry, I mean, and even larger issuers, larger banks, they, they haven't nailed it. Nobody can be an expert. Where, it, where it's really powerful is where, it, as an industry, we come together with solutions that ultimately will require a judgment call at some point. But if we, the right tools are in place and the right processes are in place, that's when, when the industry is effective at fighting, at fighting fraud and hopefully reducing it. Yeah, and I think the um, – I totally agree. I think the confirmation of payee um, system, which should be live by March of next year, is a really positive step forward for the industry that should actually reduce fraud overall. I think there are the um, – there's a report coming out, and it may be out by the time this, this podcast is aired from the Treasury Select Committee, looking at this exact issue and sort of a range of measures. But confirmation of pay, I think, will be a real step forward in the fight against authorised push payment. And um, just unpack slightly, what, so for, I guess, for an international audience, what, what does that mean? What will that do? So at the moment, um, the way a, a typical authorised push payment fraud will take place is that... Um, you you might be a Monzo customer or a Lloyds Bank customer or whatever, and you receive a phone call, and the person on the other end of the phone line says, "This is Lloyds Fraud Department, Monzo Fraud Department. I have to tell you, your account is um, is under attack, is in jeopardy. Um, people are trying to get in. They, the money's not left yet, but you need to do something about it. Do you have a safe account?" And the person will say, "Well, I, what's a safe account? So oh, an, another account with different in um, at a, in a different place that that's um, you can move the money into to protect it." No, I've not got one of those. And the person on the phone will say, no problem, I'll set you up a safe account right now. And all you have to do is move money from this account into the safe account. And you, you can be sure it's your account because put your own name in the, in the recipient field. And, you know, that, that will ensure that it's, you know it's going to yourself. Of course, people who are familiar with the financial services industry know for a faster payment that you can put whatever junk you want in that name field, honestly. Hmm. Um, most banks don't do anything with it at all. And so confirmation of pay is a system that allows the sending bank to take that name field, make a request to the recipient bank and say, my customer thinks they're sending money to Joe Bloggs. Is this Joe Bloggs' account? And the recipient bank will respond, yes, it is. 
or no, it absolutely isn't, or this is a sort of partial match. It's JBlog, so probably close enough. Hmm. That allows you to flag up to the person. Look, you think you're sending it to Joe Bloggs. It, this really isn't Joe Bloggs. Please take care. Um, so I think that will help in that category. The unfortunate thing is um, criminals and fraudsters are so inventive that there will be a new a new scam next time with a different script. But this, this script is um, unfortunately very, very effective at the moment. It's where uh, a lot of particularly older and more vulnerable people are being are being fooled. Um, I think I think that's really difficult, isn't it? I suppose what we've seen in the advertising from the banks and this year is all about, you know, fraud, don't trust anyone, didn't give your password out over the phone. And for those of us who work in financial services, you would never do it. If my credit card company calls me, I now hang up and I call them back because now I'm overcautious because mm. now I think, oh, I don't know who that guy is. So I think... Um, it does help, but as you say, there are always going to be new ways of defrauding people. And it's how we, um, I suppose, fight or mitigate that. Yeah, I mean, like I say, you know, criminals are rather entrepreneurial, aren't they? But uh, yeah, but they've got a good business, eh? They so, do. Um, they need to stay ahead of the trends. Exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I mean, is there anything you guys are so privileged to have you know, the opportunity to communicate with your customers in a, a different way to many banks? So. Do you have an opportunity to try and educate people around these risks in a way that's sort of above and beyond what the rest of the industry is doing? It's, it's tricky, honestly. Um, I I think you can educate all you want, and, and we try to do it, um, but I think doing work to make the whole system less susceptible to fraud is the ultimate solution here, not, not expecting customers are going to be um, socially engineered and manipulated. They have been for the entire of history. That will continue to be true forever. I think using technology and data in a smart way to actually reduce the amount of fraud in the system is the only only way forwards on this. In particular, I think um, a, a system that allows the banks to coordinate their response much, much faster. To be able to say, my customer's been scammed and shut down the recipient account and any other further recipient account very, very quickly. Just a sort of stop button that freezes the, the chain of accounts. And it might be across five or six separate banks. At the moment, the way this works for some banks is they'll send a fax and the fax might get picked up a week later. And by that time, the money is long gone. So mm. I think basically a centralized um, uh, sort of system for locking down accounts for review and then return of funds uh, is... Uh, I can see the industry moving towards that for the next few years. I mean, I think the, the major dif- difficulty there, I was at the um, FCA tech sprint recently that was all about AML. And actually, the difficulty that, I mean, you have talking to another organization is the way in which they do fraud mechanisms and risk. And, you know, fraud really is a business decision at, in, at this stage in terms of where people are and people make very different decisions to, to one another. Um, I don't think interbank... Um, profiles for risk works because I don't think banks will trust other people's views on what risk is. Um, and it's really interesting. I think to your point, you you do need some uh, singular central unit to do this thing really, really effectively because actually then it's it's not about, you know, you working closely with Lloyd's and the, the you know, you trusting their risk policy or them trusting your risk policy. But actually the that there becomes more of a unified standards for these types of things in the way that there is in many other instances. You wouldn't expect you and, uh, you know, Barclays to have a completely different setup for what payments are. Um, so why do we expect it with the other things that are in there? I think everyone thinks they the best risk policy, right? You know, everyone's going to say their risk policy is the best in the market. I, I don't know. I'm not sure how many of them do it. <laughs> if I'm honest with you. So, but uh, but to my point, it's a. I think it's an accepted 
sort of risk of business that they have. And actually, given the scale in many instances, then it's just one that they have. I think the other thing to element of this is like we're, we're perversely in a world where digital is facilitating just a completely different, um, you know, front door to banking. Uh, you know, it used to be it was a you know, burly set of people in front of a, uh, you know, a, a, a vault. Uh, that was, you know, fraud management, essentially. They probably had a shotgun as well, you know. So now we're in a system where actually banks are having to be much, much, much more sophisticated around technology. And maybe they're just not quite at that game yet in terms of the level of losses, the level of risk. Because it's only 1% globally of uh, AML that's actually being picked up in totality. That is shocking. You know, when you look at, to your point, Tom, all of the the things that this money is being used for. It's not, uh, you know, somebody scamming six or 700 quid out of a thing. It's like actually human trafficking and to your point. So it's uh, it's a problem that really, really needs to be addressed. But I think it actually requires not only the banks, but the media to be probably on the, the right side of this one to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, the final thing I would mention is um, the contingent reimbursement model and particularly... Um, the proposals at the moment for a sort of industry-wide levy. So the big campaign from from which, which basically says these customers are being scammed and, and in some cases suffering life-changing losses and the bank should be on the hook for that, which I don't disagree with, actually. Um, I think if the customer's done everything they can to protect themselves and taken reasonable steps, actually the bank should step in and um, make those customers whole. The problem at the moment is that the proposal there is a proposal that every bank will basically pay a levy into a central pot that will be used um, used for that. And if you imagine you've got, take polluting factories as an analogy, you've got nine old factories that are all pumping pollution into the river. Um, and then you've got a new technology-enabled factory that is actually much less polluting. And a regulator, the, the whole industry says, well, to clean up this pollution, we're going to put a levy on everyone. The problem is you have this... Um, this sort of ex- externality problem that even if you reduce your fraud to zero, it's only going to reduce the whole pool by 10% and you're still funding everyone else's pollution. Mm. And so at Monzo, we absolutely support refunding customers, but we'd refund our own customers because w- in many instances, our fraud rates are f- four or five times lower mm. than industry. Whereas for a big bank like Barclays or HSBC, it's it's a tiny, tiny cost of doing business. Yeah. For us, it's absolutely game-changing in terms of the, the economic consequences of of having to fund Barclays or HSBC's fraud losses. Yeah, I mean, it could fundamentally change the operating cost of the whole of the organization. So um, hopefully they're going to make that proportionate rather than just a, uh, uh, you know, a, a blanket setup. But um, I guess we'll find out a lot more about that at that stage. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the, the proposal is a flat fee per payment with no with no risk rating on how much fraud you are exposed to or create. Let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> All right. On that note then, Tom, thanks very much for coming in. I uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time to come and say hey. Thanks for having me. Okay. And the next story is coming over on CNBC. This is FinTech's fast pass to traditional banking is now cut off. So this is a ruling by the federal judge this week pours cold water on a special bank charter that would have helped some tech companies quickly become banks. The New York judge ruled that the regulator issuing FinTech charters didn't have the authority in which to do so. The charters look to expedite the process by allowing startups to offer lending or payments products without the needing to comply with state banking regulations, or in fact, to obtain the FDIC insurance. I mean, this seems like a interesting, ongoing, 
what's happening in the US with regulation. <laughs> like we, to a point, almost need a jingle. So what do you guys think of this one then? It seems kind of an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, what is interesting is that it seems that the U.S. are going the exact opposite way as the, to the EU. So in the EU, we are opening up access, giving more access. I mean, we just heard from Tom, uh, new banks coming up and, and creating disruption in the, in the system. This seems like the opposite of what they're trying to do, which, which is interesting. And I, I, I don't know the reason for it. All I know is that I think they're not going to prevent new new banks going there. I mean, we know Monzo, we know Revolut are going in the US, and we we as Massacre we work with them, and there are ways to get in. I just seem it just seems that they are making the little extra mm. difficult, the, the extra more difficult. So I'm not sure this is necessarily New York or uh, you know various different states disagreeing that this is a good thing to do because there are certain states that already I cannot remember the one off the top of my head, but who are being very pro fintech. I think it's like a, an argument over. Over who says you can make me do this. You know, I mean, I, I think New York, particularly, obviously, with everything that happens there, you know, it is sort of the capital of uh, uh, banking in, in, the, in the US is quite progressive, but it feels to me like they just don't like being told what to do. I don't know about yeah, UK. No, absolutely. I think it kind of connects back to the fundamental issues in the states between the tensions of the, you know, the federal system versus the uh, individual states. Um, you know, when you look at, when you look at the, the details of it, you know, they're, they're referring back to what's prescribed in the National Banking Act that comes from, you know, 1863. And they just have this, you know, I'm a history lover myself, but, you know, I don't think something from 1863 should really be the, the thing that's making or breaking the decisions we're making about what financial services exist in the 21st century in, in modern America. So, yeah, there's this constant underlying tension of, you know, there's a, a momentum and a, and a will to kind of do things differently, but just this state versus federal system just keeps coming back again yeah. and again and again. Well, and, and it feels it feels to me like the, the problem here is being almost skirted around. To your, to your point, actually, there are players who are going into this market who are using Cross River or various other, uh, you know, organizations to deal with the regulatory side of things to allow them to focus on the, you know, being a tech startup and going to market with these things. Even, you know, Monzo is using a partner bank to go to market here, so have N26 and various other players as well. So, I mean, if you... Surely it is better to take the type of approach that the FCA and the PRA have, have here of having people really into the system and fully taking ownership of the processes and their fraud mechanisms like we've just been talking about and everything that goes through it because then it's a truly differentiated company. Um, I think this goes back to the problem, the differentiation between our system and everywhere else is the creation of competition here is the mandate. Uh, that isn't the case in in the other geographies, and I think it 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 makes them act in this slightly schizophrenic sense. Yeah, I think um, I think the US is probably one of the few scalable markets in the world. Right, you've probably got the US, India, China, and also Europe. The Europe and the US are completely different. Right, we're not. Um, you can't build the same product in the UK and sell it in Germany. You can in the US. But not all states are created equally, right? You've probably got two states, New York and California, where you want to be licensed to sell your product. You know, there's not many of the the smaller states who obviously have their say under the um, under the regulations who you're going to set up a business and build a customer base. So I'm not surprised that New York have sort of put their foot down because I, I guess they've got the, the most impact um, with this going ahead. Hmm. I, I wonder if we are going to start seeing um, state entry for national charters. I wonder if any of the states are going to be able to become almost a proxy for statewide, um, 
national wide uh, you know authorization. You know, so it's like passporting. We have yeah, to, yeah. I mean, it's it's got to happen at, at some point, but the the sort of web of negotiations across all of the different states to make that happen is going to be quite complex. But um, I mean, th- honestly, I think this is the the only missing ingredient from the recipe for for fintech in uh, uh, in the US you know and actually if the the challenge to the top 5 banks is ever going to come it's it's going to be by the regulation being changed in my my opinion do you think it's from a protection angle you know them not wanting um non US companies going into the US and scaling quickly i don't think it's just that i think um i mean even new US banks you know actually if you if you look at the state to state regulation it's why people like wells fargo have to have tens of thousands of people looking at regulation you know i, I i'm not sure they're doing it to protect the big organizations because it's as much a, a hindrance to them as anybody you know it costs wells fargo i think billions of dollars a year just to deal with the state-to-state regulation to to operate in all of the ones that they do. So I think it's just an accident of, uh, you know, 200-plus uh, years of uh, a financial system being pieced together and, and being in a situation where actually just this is where we are. But, um, you know, like the Gordian knot, it's going to have to take a, a real firm swing to kind of get through it to bring sense to it. But I mean, given everything that's happening in the US, given everything that's happening in the UK from a, a political perspective, then uh, there's probably a few other things to fix first. Yeah, I mean, I think there is also an element of you know, established players wanting to protect the space from non, non-bank non savvy entrants coming into the market. So you look at the reaction that you know, Rakuten has had from you know, going in and applying for their, I think they're going for the industrial loan charter route kind of through Utah. And the reaction to that from all the credit unions is just like, whoa, you know, they don't have a clue what they're doing. You know, calm the pipe, you know, calm down, you don't know what you're doing. Um, so it, I think there is this sort of, there is part of it that is also coming from that angle. You know, you've got entrenched big organisations you know, you know, representing credit unions and, and all other different things which make the, the US very unique. Mm. Um, and they've kind of said, well, you know, we need to get these guys to slow down and go through a fintech charter route. Mm. And then you look at the fintech charter itself, and you know, if you look at the ruling that came out, you know, they were saying that nobody actually had applied for it yet in the first place. Lots of fintechs had come in and spoken to them, had seen all of the things they were required to do anyway, and said, nope, no thank you, not for us. So again, like there's lots of different vested interests that are all kind of fighting their corner, and there's not that central drive or that central body that's actually driving for the change that we've seen in other markets. Mm. Which, is, which is not wholly unreasonable. You know, if you turn up and you want to start a bank in, you know, six weeks, you know, that's <laughs> going to raise a lot of, you know, question marks. So I understand the fact that you need to have regulation and you need to have, you know, a proper set of controls for any new entity. However, the biggest issue if you're starting a bank or a payments company is time. You know, you've got limited time to get your product to market, to prove your concept in the market. If it's going to take you 18 months to get all your state licenses, which is probably 24 months, if not longer, um, you know, you've lost two years. So then you're two years behind proving your concept, building your customer base in the US. Um, And I think if you can shorten that, because I think nowadays you can shorten these things, right? You know, you can build a scalable model to get licensed in every state. We, we see it, you know, as, as, um, as we speak to um, U.S. Um, state regulators. They're broadly similar, but everyone has their own nuances. They could be unified. Like, they're not that far apart. 
Um, and that's the only way the the US is going to open up to competition. Mm. Yeah. And, and to Kate's point, I think there is an element of the larger institution trying to protect their space. But it's also, I think, when you look at the US landscape, in, the banking landscape is, is very fragmented and very diverse already, probably more so than Europe. You you have the very large banks, but then you have a myriad, myriad of credit union and smaller institutions, national banks. So it's already a complex environment. Having said that, it's an environment that still is ripe for disruption. And I, I think when you look at the U.S., it's a, a dichotomy of some a lot of the biggest innovation coming out of the U.S., but yet a lot of the some oldest way of still paying by check, for example, when you, when you go into your <laughs> shopping. So I think the regulator should look at that and should create a way, a, an easier way to, for this disruption to happen within fra- a certain framework, obviously. Mm. Yeah. But I think it's, it's important. I think that's really important. I think... You know, aside from wanting to be a fintech, you want to scale in the US, you also have to look at the consumers in the US and what yeah. product they're getting on the ground. Why are people still using checkbooks? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 2019. So I've, I think to be fair to consumers, you need to give them a choice, but you also need to give them the technology so they can manage their money better, so they can save to their financial goals. Yeah. You know, that should be a fair and level playing field, whether you live in California or, or in Midwest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, think, I think often, though, I think it's, um, I mean, in many instances, it's incentivizing changing behavior. And mm. I think actually, you know, when um, we've seen uh, the, the sort of scaling and adoption of technology here through actually nothing to do with financial services, really the, the uh, contactless payments for things like Oyster Card here created such a, a wave of adoption of things that when contactless payments through our, our current account came, uh, it was no big deal. Um, you know, the US still calls a current account yeah. a checking account, meaning <laughs> yes. you're going to get a check thing with it. So, you know, I think there is a long way to go in it, but I think I think user behavior will change quickly. They've just got, um, you know, contactless payments on the, the, uh, the, the subway. subway, subway. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that is changing a lot. Uh, you know, from the last time I was there to last month, you know, we've just opened up an office in New York and it's changed dramatically, you know. It, so it is accelerating really quickly. And, you know, not having this is not stopping change because Apple Card happened. And, you know, yes, it took, a big incumbent organization to partner with them to make it happen, but it doesn't seem to be stopping innovation. You know, Venmo is a thing because it needed to be a thing, but it still is and still is providing a benefit to people. So, um, I, you know, I think the US market has got a long way to go, but um, there's a hell of a lot of people. So actually, if they get it right, it's going to be pretty impressive. I yeah. actually, yeah, I actually think that the, the barriers that are in the US market have created a really interesting fintech environment. So if you look at the US versus you know, other markets in the UK, a lot of fintechs are trying to kind of go for that whole financial experience all in one go. In the US, you know, they've, they've not been able to do that. They've not been able to get the, the full banking charters. So what you've seen the fintechs doing is going after really niche customer problems. Um, and actually, in you know, lots of instances, doing that really, really well. So we see propositions that are focusing on serving a very specific need for a specific customer and delivering that in a, in a really impactful way. Um, and what we know from the work that we do in the US, you know, is that customers are used to having a very large, complicated financial system in the US. You know, they're used to having... I mean, the first time I was speaking to customers in the US, it blew my mind. You know, they'd open a wallet and you know, 15 credit cards come out and they, to them, that's just totally normal. Mm. Um, but I think they are, I think we shouldn't underestimate, you know, actually, it may be a fragmented system, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not adding value to customers and that, you know, fintechs can't continue to add value even despite not being able to become like a, a bank that does absolutely everything for everyone. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. totally agree with you. And I, th- I think it's, it's interesting what both of you just said is is the fragmentation both from a 
niche perspective of which product they're going after, the, the geographical fragmentation, if you're in New York or if you're in California versus if you're in other areas. But I think w- what is missing is what you were saying, David, is sometimes a- a- enabling the, the whole ecosystem. So what is that, that event that is going to make the change happen qu- more quickly, like the tube, the, the TFL contactless yeah. here in, in London? And I think this is probably what the regulator should also look at, is how can they create that ecosystem faster? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the difference to a certain degree. I'm not sure the, uh, you know, that competition element, I'm not sure there is that stimulus for change in there in a real way. But I mean, the, as a as a country being not served, then ultimately it will come down to consumers' behavior, really. So, um, but yeah, I mean, a long way to go on this one. Uh, yeah, and I'm sorry, just the last point that I think if you look at outside of financial services, like every multi-billion dollar company now, we all use Facebook, Google, they all came from the US. Consumers move really fast if they're given the product. So I think that's why it's probably the biggest opportunity in fintech is, is the US. Yeah, agree. All right, we will be back very shortly after a quick break. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you're heading to ZeroCon this year in London's Excel, we'll be putting on another Fintech Insider live on the Exhibition Hall stage. Uh, Zero are trusting us to wrap up day one on the, the conference in style with a live show announcing all the Fintech partnerships from the event and also the return of the FN debate. If you're at the conference and you will not want to miss that, it's over on the 13th of November in London's XL. And if you can't be there, Stay tuned for the podcast that we'll be putting up on the show. Okay, on with the show. Next up, we have a story over on Bloomberg, which is banks must act now or risk becoming a footnote says McKinsey. A report from McKinsey Co. says that more than half of the world's banks are in a weak position amid talks of a potential economic downturn. The report also points to increased competition from fintech startups who have capitalized on lower lower barriers of entry and a greater emphasis on innovation. The consultancy urged firms to develop technology, farm out operations, and bulk up through mergers ahead of the possible slowdown. I mean, who wants to start on this one and then I'll give it a go? You guys have a run up because I think when I start, I'm going to go for a while. Oh, it's a poison chalice, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Okay, I'll start. I'll start. So I, I think my view is I don't think bank will become a footnote. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a question of becoming a footnote. And we, when we compare banks with fintech, we're compare, we not necessarily comparing like for like. We're comparing big organization with a variety of product with very nimble and fast organization with a much more targeted proposition. 
So it's it's hard to compare. I think what banks need to be wary of, and and what probably McKinsey should have worked with them before the fintech came on, is to enhance the customer experience because that's what what the new generation are expecting. If I'm a 20 year old, I don't want to go in in a bank and open a, to open an account and sit for like half an hour, an hour in a, in, a, in in a branch. I want to be able to do it on my mobile and have the bank account open in in five minutes. That customer experience, whatever happens, will become the new. Normal. And that's where banks are struggling to, to to keep up, from my perspective. Hmm. No, I agree with that. I think there's there's a few there's a few things in here that don't make sense to definitions that I recognise, though, because I mean, any fintech startup who's actually putting any budget to innovation, I have never seen. You know, I mean, they don't. To your point, it isn't it isn't being they're not being innovative like. You know, Tom doesn't have an innovation budget or an innovation arm. He's building his bank. They're doing things just in the way that they're done now. Um, I think the bit that I, I sort of take most exception to on this one is, hasn't McKinsey been the people who have basically been advising the banks for the last 50 years on what their strategy should be and how to mitigate these things? Therefore, are they not just saying they got their strategy wrong and possibly billions of pounds that they were paid? Maybe Bain was doing the strategy at that time. Maybe that was it. <laughs> but I think it's. Um, I think you're right. I think you know if you have a separate innovation lab hub where you have 20 guys in Shoreditch, you're not really changing your core banking product. So the innovation shouldn't be a separate thing or shouldn't be a new thing. That should be you looking at the market now, seeing if you're relevant or not. Mm. I think a lot of fintechs are um, servicing, you know, businesses, SMEs, individuals. Big bank profits don't come from those sectors. So they're servicing, you know, your hedge funds, your institutional investors. That's where they're making their money. That's where they're comfortable. So there has to be a tipping point where they realize that they're getting left behind and they need to do more for the sectors that the fintech are addressing, fintechs are addressing, or there'll be M&A and they'll start acquiring fintechs. Mm. So, uh, it's handy that they've noted as well that they can help you with M&As as well. So. Oh, absolutely. A full yeah. suite of services. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say, I do agree with a lot of the stuff that they're saying. You know, we are very, very clearly, uh, you know, late in a, in a cycle now. We are almost certainly heading into another downturn over the next, you know, 12 months at, at tops, I would have thought. Um, but it just sticks with me that they're basically saying the thing that has been advised to them for a number of years that they haven't done is now the thing that they absolutely have to change. And by the way, we have a thing to fix that. It just seems you can't have been the problem and the solution at the same time in this sense. But I mean, a lot of the things that they're saying in terms of the banks now have to make these changes dramatically because fundamentally they're going into a period where uh, cost efficiency and unit economics are going to be a much, much, much more uh, important to ensure that actually you can either continue to do a business to do business or take business to places where you haven't been able to do before. Um, but I just think it pisses me off that it's McKinsey. <laughs> I, think, I think banks will always form the foundation of the financial system. So you, you need the banks there to form, you know, your interaction with financial services, whether you are a startup fintech bank like, like Monzo or whether you're, you're a HSBC. <laughs> But I, th I think the, the the thing with the reports, which uh, I read through, is also that we're not all going after the same customers. You know, global population is growing. We're different types of products now, which fintechs are servicing, e-commerce flows, for example, which the banks haven't dealt with, but fintechs are coming in now and dealing with. Mm. So maybe they're not losing business. Maybe it's not gaining new business because they're not offering the products that the customers want. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting, the examples that they cite in the report of industries that have gone down the same path and not taken heed of McKinsey are, oh, you know, the travel or publishing industries. And actually, I think I've heard you know, Mr. Jason Bates, to give him his credit where it's gene, I've heard him give a much better example, I think, which is talking about the, the telecoms industry. And actually, I think if you look at the telecoms industry, you know, big mobile network providers, you know, they used to be absolute kings of the world. They owned absolutely all of the value chain. Um, very similar model to banking in the way, you know, they've got huge underlying infrastructure costs. Um, and now actually, they're really, really competing for that, that kind of share of the pie you know a lot of them have been reduced to just being the, the sort of the dumb pipe at the bottom that other providers are sitting on top of and providing the value-add service to customers so i think yeah maybe i think that to me seems like a much better analogy for some of the risks that are facing the financial sector but actually yes they will always be part of the system you're never going to get rid of the bt network but is the bt network capturing the same amount of value that it used to probably not i don't know based on uh, based on on air this week where elon musk is putting forty thousand satellites into space we might be getting rid of the uh, bt network sometime soon so uh, head over to that and tune into that if you want to catch up on uh, on that really weird lateral that i just took everybody on to <laughs> <laughs> but i think one of the things that is interesting of the report of mckinsey is that they focus on the fact of the innovation funds for the banks i personally don't think the issue is bank not investing enough in their innovation Every bank, if you talk to RBS or Lloyds, they all have innovation funds, innovation team coming out of their ears, probably. I think that what the biggest challenge is, and what Kate, you refer to with, is the underlying infrastructure and the underlying uh, system on which the bank is built, which sometimes prevents innovation. Because you, you can come up with many ideas, you could build them, but if the system is so obsolete or hasn't been invested in, and that's where, where the biggest challenge for the bank and the biggest issue to, to address, which is very costly and it's uh, it's a very risky thing to do when you're running a multi-million operation on that on that system. So that's where the, the yeah, it's, it's how quickly you can move, how quickly you can pivot your business, and it's having the conviction. This is the problem as well: is having the conviction to lead the business into a complete new direction. If you're a public listing company and you're going quarter to quarter at the behest of the markets, you know, do you have that? runway to say, okay, I think in 2021, everyone is going to be using their phone for every single payment or transaction. No one's going to use desktop apps anymore and close that department down. I don't think you have that luxury being the CEO of um, HSBC. Mm. I mean, an interesting point on this one would be as well that, I mean, everything that they're referring to based on an imminent downturn, which, like I say, is within the next 12 months. So develop technology. So you've got a magic wand where yeah. you're going to create <laughs> exactly. some technology and get it out in the next 12 months. Farm out operations. Well, I mean, that's going to take a lot longer than 12 months, isn't it? Uh, buy something. Well, I mean, banks don't have a great track record of buying things and not sort of breaking them. But anyway, I think we're going to have to move on because I'm going to probably take <laughs> up the rest of the show on this one. But I mean, I, I think this is very much a, a an instance of actually, if I'm honest with you, McKinsey changing their advice that they've been giving people for a while. And uh, it will be very interesting to see. I suspect many people will take this advice, but I wonder if, who they'll take it with. All right, moving on to the next one. We have a story over on the Financial Times, and this is Uber pushes into payments with Uber Money. Uh, Uber have announced it's moving further into payment space with Uber Money. The new initiative aims to offer real-time payment uh, payouts to the company's 4 million drivers after every trip. So currently, drivers are paid once a week. Uh, an expansion to the Uber Cash service, I mean, they just 
do the Apple thing and put Uber in front of normal <laughs> words by the sound of things, which is good. Uh, or we'll also let drivers settle cash payments within the app uh, while the new Uber credit cards, see what they did there, and debit cards are also being rolled out now as well. Uh, the news follows some criticism that Uber drivers were being um, forced to take on expenses in their own sense here. Um I mean, I really like this. I know Uber have sort of come under a little bit of uh, pressure over the last couple of years, predominantly around uh, some of the sort of cultural traits within their organization. But I actually love the idea that they're increasingly turning their employees or whatever they're allowed to call them these days then uh, into revenue opportunities, quite frankly. Not that I'm going to do this anytime soon. I love my best case, don't panic. <laughs> um, but being in a situation where they're really, you know, making the most of all of those opportunities that they've got, just it actually just seems very sensible to me. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, the, I read a blog from their CEO a couple of months ago that I thought was interesting. He talked about you know, their aspiration is to become the operating system for your everyday life. Yeah. Um, and I think you know if, we, if you think about it from that perspective, it makes it makes total sense. You know, I think they've already dabbled in the the kind of the personal space before. I think they'd already put out a credit card with Barclays, and this is just a bit of a, a refresh of that. I'm guessing that wasn't a stellar success, but um, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think we focus on the angle of you know Uber going after another chunk of the pie, um, but actually, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that you know this is a hugely competitive industry in terms of finding the talent, or not the talent per se, but the, you know, the resources that they need to, to fuel their system, you know, their, their platform, they need drivers. Um, you know, Just in London, we're starting ready to see more competitors coming to their space. So they need ways to, to really hook these people into their system above and beyond just giving them a, a, piece of, a piece of work from day to day. So yeah, to me, it makes sense on multiple fronts, both in terms of opening up new revenue opportunities for them, but also helping to make their, their employee proposition. Well, not employee, obviously, we had a little chat beforehand about that with employees. <laughs> um, but yeah, making their proposition for their drivers more appealing. Um, and that's also key as well. I think the I think the knee-jerk reaction with this stuff is always Uber's evil. What's the angle on this? How are they making money? How are they, you know, scamming their drivers? But I think if I was an Uber driver, a lot of drivers drive part-time or irregularly. You don't have to drive every day. Um it's great. You get your money same day, so you're getting paid in real time. I'm sure your employees here at Eleven FS would uh, would love getting paid uh, on the same day. You know, it's it's. it's Cheers, a, mate. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> we'll have a chat about that later, Kate. Great, great for your cash flow. But um, you know, if it, if it is this sort of casual zero hours work, and you're getting your money same day, you can control your funds. I think it can only be a good thing. I think you know if there's any other company offering their employees this sort of flexibility or this sort of instant return on the the work they do, we would be uh, a lot more enthusiastic about it. I think with these big companies like Uber, we would look for the the negative. But I think if I was a driver, I'd be quite happy with this situation. So if your if your employer did offer you this type of thing? Is that the type of thing that you would look at? Do, I mean, Kate, like if 11FS was suddenly like, right, we're going to pay you daily rather than, rather than monthly. Yeah, Laura's like, yeah, take it. Take it. <laughs> um, but like, I mean, is this something that you would want or? Personally, no, no. I think we've seen, it's interesting in the in the US and the fintech space, a lot of them are now going to market with this push on you, get paid a day early. Um, it's different in the US because I think a lot of people get paid every fortnight rather than every month. Um, but yeah, to me, you know, when we speak to, to customers about the ways that they struggle with their money, it's it's not really about how often you get paid, it's what you actually 
do when you get paid or how your money is actually shaped or structured when you get paid. Um, and actually, for most people, it can be complicated enough just receiving money like once a fortnight or once a month. Like if you've got money coming in every single day and then the main difference is, you know, if your salary is coming in every day, but your bills are coming out every month or, you know, once a year, twice a year. All these different timeframes are just too much for the, you know, the average human person you know, who's not a superhero with like a brain the size of Britain to, to process. So actually, no, please don't pay me every day. <laughs> well, I think the difference spend is, it all on <laughs> Farmer J. If, if, you, if you're uh, if you only work in one day a week, yeah. or if you want if you're that sort of flexible, you're not a salaried full time yeah. worker, and you want to earn a bit more money because you're a student or you're going on holiday, you can do an extra shift. I, Maybe it'll have the negative effect that you work more to get those more immediate gains. But I think it's giving control to the employee. I think I think it is it's gamifying employment to a certain degree. You know, actually that immediacy of payment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, mm. it could it could lead to well just one more trip, you know, just one more delivery of food or one more yeah, whatever, you absolutely. know. Because actually the you know, or you're going to earn until an amount of money you need to go do a thing and then you stop. I think for for gig economy it makes a huge amount of sense. Um I mean, I, I'd be. I mean, we should go and ask a bunch of people, Kate. If this is in a corporate environment, are we a corporate? No, let's not call ourselves a corporate. That seems mean. I'm not sure that it? was in the values no, presentation. It really wasn't. No. <laughs> um, then, in a more professional environment, then actually, um, would this be something people would want or not? But I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I, I agree with James. Is is about the the. It's not these are not salary salaried employees who get the same money every every month. It's more about the, this more ad hoc type of, of usage, and that allows them to to manage their cash flow better, having having the daily payment. And um, it, there are a lot of companies in the gig economy that are looking at solution with the schemes as well, Visa, Mastercard, not just through the card car, but also through faster payment and 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 um, um, connection of money to to get. Uh, a more real-time payment to, to their employees. So I think, all in all, it's a good thing. To, to your point, David, there needs to be some control around. It doesn't need to become the, I, I'll do the extra trip, I'll do the extra, just to earn that extra more today. But if they put the right control with this daily payment, I think it will improve the condition of the of the driver. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if, from a purely from a, like a psychological perspective, whether people would treat a smaller amount of money coming in as salary and with slightly less reverence in terms of the way in which they behaved with that money. But I feel like we should do some research around this one, Kate. So let's talk about this maybe, later maybe on. Maybe it's going to launch the new Uber savings product, right? You get your money every day, but you put in a little Uber wallet and then maybe. you can, you know, invest it in Uber. <laughs> it's definitely going to be your call to Uber something, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we haven't mentioned it. There's other things they've not, you know, they're also giving people cash back or yeah. specific things. So they've, they've also done some thinking about how they can you know, put a sticky factor to mm -hmm. it. So giving drivers cash back on their petrol seems to me quite a, a strong connection to make. So they're offering other benefits as well. It's not just yeah. about about. Yeah, but probably the, the, the way they think about themselves, like other companies in the space, is they see themselves as a platform and they look at what are the connections for the platform to grow and to continue, not just they move, they started moving people around mm. and now they're moving money around yeah. and they're moving food around. So it's, it's an interesting concept which not only Uber but many other companies like that are looking to to control the end-to-end -end experience customer yeah. journey across the platform I mean grab over in Singapore are doing really similar things it's it's almost um, you know the point where you've got a very very large community then actually what are all the opportunities that brings to you but um, I mean gonna be interesting to see how this one pans out for uber mm -hmm. all right and moving on to the next story we have over on CNBC this is square launched stock trading app. 
um, called Cash App. So Square will offer users the ability to trade individual stocks for free and fractions of expensive stocks for that matter as well. So the new offer pegs them squarely pun intended, against Robinhood, which has attracted a $7.6 billion valuation and more than 6 million users uh, while they've been doing that. So Square's Cash App has more than 50 million monthly active users right now, which is pretty damn impressive. I really like Square. Like, I just feel like they're, they're on such a sort of rejuvenating what they stand for and what they do sort of tip. Yeah, I think we should be careful. This could become a Square loving because I'm quite a fan as well. All right, um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just think it's really interesting if you look at the way that um, you know, Jack Dorsey talks about his aspirations for the company and what he wants to do. It's all about, you know, he's quite, they're quite proud of the fact that they launched the app in the first place and it sort of accidentally became a, a proxy for a bank. You know, they had aspirations for it to do quite practical things. So they start off in payments and then the debit card and the rewards um, and then they sort of moved into Bitcoin and now they're moving into investments. And I think you know, if you look at the way that he talks about it, obviously he's come from a different perspective. You know, he thinks about Square as having the same aspirations as an internet business. And he sees sort of traditional money as being the, the blocker that stops Square being able to sort of realise its ambitions. You know, the financial, we already talked about the US financial system. I think he's he's come out quite openly and complained about that. And I think that's why he's put a lot of, of time and effort for his company into Bitcoin, because he, he sort of really believes that that has a, the possibility to, to change the way that new opportunities in the financial services space can, can spread globally in the way that internet companies can. So, yeah, and I think if you look at the the, the way they're they're talking about this new this new offer on their website, um, kind of really resonates with the audience that they say they're trying to go after. It's super accessible. You know, they talk about stock exchanges. I think uh, I wrote it down because it kind of appealed to me. They used to be physical places full of shouty people, but now they're mostly digital places full of computery people. Mm. And I just thought, yeah, I think you know, they've, they've if you click through it, you know, they're really trying to take this kind of investment approach. This is what it seems anyway. Take this investment approach and make it accessible. And we've seen. Um, across multiple markets, that that's the real, the real challenge is you know, how can you take people that don't have this understanding of the investment space, don't have the kind of confidence that it's something that they should naturally think to do, and make it something that feels accessible and easy and not scary. Mm. Um, and I mean, they, see what they, do. they made a big um, a big push about the sort of fractional holding side of things as well to allow just normal humans to own parts of the company that they're really, really invested in. Yeah, big, um, big, sexy companies, you know, not just like some random stock listing that you've never heard of. It's, it's you know, being able to connect to brands, as you say. Mm. I think um, I think it's a good initiative and I think it probably allows you to trade the stock market and buy a portion of a stock you like, like, I don't know, Coca-Cola, what have you. But I think the the danger is without effective education around what you're actually buying, um, it can go wrong very quickly. And I think a lot of people who Square are targeting, so, same as Robin Hood, have never experienced a, a bear market. So they haven't experienced it when things go wrong because things go wrong really quickly. And I think it's fine if you're maybe spending £100 a month on some stocks. If you're putting all of your cash, spare cash every month into Coca-Cola because you really like drinking Coca-Cola um, and then we have a global downturn, which McKinsey are predicting pretty soon, um, it can go wrong very quickly. So I think the opportunity to buy stocks and to be transparent about what you're buying is, is really good at a low price. I think a lot of people still don't understand the inherent risks. We've been in this really long bull market, which doesn't show any signs of slowing down today. But when it does, it, it slows down very, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to your point, if you're putting your day-to-day -day savings into investments, 
you have a problem <laughs> yes. Be because essentially, um, you know, whether there's a downturn or not a downturn, then actually on a long-term horizon, then you'll be better off by putting it into the market. But yeah. being in a situation where you're putting the thing that you might be hoping you can create enough money to buy a house on is not the way to go. And I, I, I think the transition from cryptocurrency into like standard stocks has slightly nullified people's sort of risk tolerance or expectation of market volatility to a certain degree. So it's like, well, stocks are more predictable. Let's put all our money in stocks. And it's like, oh, I'm not yeah, sure that's, yeah, a, that's not good science, you know. Yeah. So. You're saying the bull in the room is more predictable than the T-Rex, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> the, that's the problem. Like Marginally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can make yourself look big. You're not going to do that to a T-Rex. Yeah. All the crypto experts have kind of disappeared over the past year. And now we have all these stock experts coming up. But, you know, what are you actually buying? Why are you putting all your money into one stock? If you want to do it long-term, think about a longer-term mutual fund. Think about a longer-term tracker. That's going to be better for you if you mm. want to buy a house in five, ten yeah. years. I mean, it might it might be actually a perversely a very good educational tool. If we're talking about fractional stocks, we're actually talking about you know relatively small amounts of money. But actually, people being able to monitor the market in a real sense to see uh, the sort of limited sense of volatility, but actually start understanding the 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 losses as well as the gains in market fluctuations. I mean, that's actually quite an interesting educational process. It's not quite putting all your money on, you know, red Vegas education level, but it's definitely a view of actually starting to understand how those things work without really necessarily losing all of your money. Exactly. I came from a, a hedge fund background and I think, you know, I've seen both sides of it. And I think if Square can do something like a, a dummy account where you have a thousand pounds fictional to play with in your account for the first couple of weeks, that'd be a great initiative. And people can work out, okay, I may make money. I could lose a lot of money as well. So I think it's a great thing to open up, but it needs to be done with a bit of education around it. Mm. I mean, eToro's ability to do that, the almost fantasy football-esque view yeah. of actually investments has always been something that I found really interesting. But what do you think to this? Is this a, yeah. a good move by Square? I, I, I totally agree with James and what you just said. I mean, it's it's an interesting move. If it doesn't come with education, it can be really dangerous. I mean, it, it, not only Square is doing that. Revolut are doing the same thing on the app. You can buy shares. When buying shares becomes so accessible, I think you need to think about the most vulnerable part of the population and thinking, how can you educate them and help them make the right decision? Because it's very easy to get carried away. To your point before, it could become a gamification of buying shares, but it's not a game. The, the capital is a risk and there are challenges. So I think it's, it's, it should be open up, but with the right control and education around it. Yeah, I know the, I mean, free trade over here in the UK have, have done a lot of work to ensure that there's enough friction in that process. Uh, you know, it's not about making a process so easy that, who was it who was, uh, actually, did they, who was it who used uh, this week, actually, to advertise this uh, Alec Baldwin? Was it Square? Was it eToro? So eToro actually used Alec Baldwin this week to say <laughs> it's as easy to retweet this tweet as it is to buy stocks. That's and, I'm, and I'm, and I'm like, mm, that might be too little friction. Yeah. And also Alec Baldwin's hilarious, so yeah. I'm sure. No, it's <laughs> a I'm a big one. fan of Alec Baldwin as well, so I think I'd probably go for that <laughs> if you tell me to do it. But yeah, I think, you know, if you look at what Square have been, been trying to do, you know, they've been trying for quite a while now to get the sort of the full banking license. They've been trying to become more of a, have a wider banking offer and they've, they've hit various hiccups on the way they've not got there yet. So you, know, you hope that this is being launched with all these right intentions, with all the kind of thought and consideration behind it, the understanding of the customer, um, and you hope it's not just them 
launching the next thing that will help them to bring more revenue into the business while they wait to get their banking license and do other things. If, if I'm honest, that, I think that's the thing. Is similar to the conversation we were having with Monzo earlier on. Is like actually, I feel Square's intentions are always right. You know, I don't think they've always got everything right. And if I'm honest with you, some of Jack Dorsey's dress sense recently is definitely not on the scale that I would have gone for. Some of those boots are just weird. <laughs> but um, but actually, I do trust their intentions to be creating really valuable services for people, which is, uh, I mean, it's a pretty good place to start from a branding perspective. All right. And on to our and finally story. So we have Alexa can pay your bills. So this is over on payments. Uh, is Amazon at uh, Money 2020 Vegas presented how Alexa will soon be able to pay bills, uh, remind you of upcoming bills, uh, show you your balance and compare your bills for you using voice commands. Uh, any customer wh- whose utility is a member of the Payments Instant Payment Network, uh, up to 700 billers, I have no idea what that means, uh, can (laughs) soon use Alexa to get bill notifications as well as proactively find out when their next bill is due by asking Alexa. I use Alexa to put Spotify on in my kitchen. Mm, And there isn't enough voice control controls around Alexa to not stop my kids doing weird things with it, which they do all the time. So I'm not sure I trust it to do payments. Like, has has voice really got to the point where we really, really trust it enough to start making critical things like maybe making payments or not making payments? Or also, you know, do you want to be reminded of a bill you've not paid last year? I don't know, you've got your in-laws around or something like that. Yeah, it does seem somewhat intrusive, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't yeah. want my mother-in-law to know those things. You know? Yeah, there's huge... Yeah, we touched on it earlier. I think there's huge complexity around when when your money comes in. You've got things that have got to go out. You know, there's huge complexities around that and systems that people have and and processing that people want to do. That kind of balance between the bills that you want to make tangibly and have that moment of of recognition that you've made this payment. Um, we've seen that a lot. And so you know, Amazon have talked about this huge marketplace of of customers that don't have direct debit set up that they can go after and magically solve their problems for. And I think actually. Um, there's a lot more nuance to it that they they need to spend the time to to get into to understand actually like, why are those people not using direct debits? Why are those people not using existing smoother processes for paying their bills? Um, but some of it sounds quite fun, you know, being able to. It says uh, I had a look at some of the examples of the things they're already set up to use, and you can get tips on energy usage and, and exciting things like that. So, and I think that's the crux of the matter. It's it's quite fun. I don't know if it's useful yet. I have. My opinion on voice control is much like uh, 3D TV, like a really good idea. I never use it, you know. On my phone, on the train, I'm not going to start speaking into it. I look like a madman. Or, you know, if I'm in the car, it's easy for me to turn the radio on, then say, radio, on. You know, it's kind of, um, I don't see a use day to day. And paying my bills, you know, it's direct debit. And I, just, I don't, I, like you, I don't want to think about it. I, th- I think this is particularly aimed at a US market again. I mean, we were a big fan of direct debits and standing orders and mm. whatnot, right? But apparently Amazon are taking advantage of the 70% of consumers in the US who do not enroll in automatic payments. So uh, to help them actually with those types of reoccurring bills, which I find an alarmingly large amount. You know, it might explain why so many checks are used still yeah, potentially. Yeah, but, absolutely. you know, it, it feels like actually they're, they're maybe solving sort of the wrong problem to a certain degree, you know, making bill payments easier rather than, ed- again, from an educational perspective, getting to a point where actually the reoccurring payments are managed because that's how you don't end up missing a payment because it's automated 
in the system, you know. Yeah, but if you, speaking as somebody who doesn't even know use Alexa, so <laughs> I'm, I'm probably even beyond you guys. But I think there are some areas of the of the segment of, of the customer that would potentially look at it. So, the, to me, two segments spring to mind. First of all, the digitally native uh, generation. They we are going into the the era of voice the, and. I agree with James, we are not using it as much, but I think if you fast forward three, four, five years, there will be people who actually potentially like it and they will experiment it. It won't be for everybody, for sure. And then the other segment that we need to think about is like visually impaired people. I mean, it gives them an extra an extra way to, to do things that they would struggle otherwise to do or they find ways that are less optimal. So I think... While personally, I don't think I will use it. I think I can see application of it, and and it's it's an interesting test for me. I think that's a really good point around visually impaired people, or they're serving a a sec- section of the market which has been underserved to date. Um, I do think Amazon, you know, have the luxury of being able to launch these products, and if they fail, there's no real, you know, uh, repercussion. They launch um, buttons which you sit there on your fridge. We can order the same item. I mean, <laughs> that time I mean, will come. Yeah, that's a, I mean, a crazy I mean, they've, idea. they've now been discontinued, haven't they? Because, yeah, they can um, afford to do that. Because it turns out there's a button in the app that you can just press instead. And, I mean, I, I think it's a, um, it is an interesting one. I mean, Amazon, I, I think, are, uh, you know, they're trying things and, and continually iterating. I, I think I buy probably almost all of my things via Amazon these, yeah. these days. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm almost single-handedly sort of uh, <laughs> killing all of the, uh, the, the icebergs everywhere with the amount of cardboard I'm consuming. Which, for me, if they could deal with that problem, not sending me so much, you know, so much packaging and so much stuff when I do buy my things, then that would be better for me. But uh, until then, I'm pretty sure we're going to have to bleep out the word Alexa a lot all the way through this one. All right, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, James. Where can people find out more from you? You can find me on LinkedIn, um, James Butland, Air Wallocks. Cool, Kate. How about you? Uh, LinkedIn as well, Kate Moody, and also K8Moody on Twitter. Ido. Same for me, uh, LinkedIn, Eduardo Volta, and MasterCard. Very good. As for me, you can find me at David Breer over on Twitter. Um, you can let us know what you thought of today's show over on Twitter as well, at, at Fintech Insiders, or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to watch and share the 11 Years documentary, which you can find over on 11years.film. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.